0: Weekend FCPA episode 48 for the week ending April 14th, 2017. The CEO's Behaving Badly edition. In this episode, Matt Kelly pitch hits for a Walt Disney World vacationing Jay Rosen. Matt and I have a wide ranging discussion of some of the week's top at CPA and compliance related stories. We discuss a Sherman and Sterling uh, report to the Wells Fargo board on the fraudulent account scandal. Uh, United Airlines is at it again, this time uh, having a uh, passenger physically removed from an airline. We explore that in some depth. We touch upon the an interesting ju- judicial decision on restitution from du- Judge Posner as written about by sarah croft in her blog grand jury target we talk about the Barclays ceo penalized for trying to unmask an internal and anonymous whistleblower by using the bank's corporate security function and trying to involve u.s law enforcement and then matt concludes by reporting on oracle's modern finance expert experience conference and his thoughts around how going to the cloud can enhance your compliance program This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Jay Rosen is off on a well-deserved vacation to Disney World. Uh, So, pinch-hitting, we have uh, Matt Kelly, founder and editor at Radical Compliance. So, Matt, welcome to This Week in FCPA.
1: Hello, Tom. I'm happy to be here and will do my best to fill Jay's big shoes for uh, this week.
0: So I would note that uh, when you go to Disney World with uh, twins under the age of uh, eight, I think, it's it's not going to be a relaxing trip, but it may be fun. So uh, (laughs) with that, Matt, we had um, perhaps uh, not as much activity on the FCPA front this week, but certainly a lot of activity around compliance and ethics, and I wanted to start with just noting the... um, Sherman and Sterling, massive 110 page report to the Wells Fargo board on the fraudulent conduct uh, of the bank. Um, and uh, it was uh, a pretty damning report for uh, everyone involved, starting with the board of directors, going to CEO John Stump, the head of the community banking unit, Kerry Toldstadt, the decentralized nature of the entire business operations of Wells Fargo, individual control functions such as HR, legal, audit, and risk within the company. Uh, There's many things that we could uh, and will talk about it, but I found that it actually provided lots of uh, lessons to be learned for the compliance function as opposed to perhaps even the individual compliance practitioner and uh, chief compliance officer or compliance professional uh, because it really talked about Uh, The thing that struck me about the report was its lack of the word compliance, and the chief compliance officer was mentioned one time in the entire report. It wasn't that compliance didn't have a seat at the table. Uh, They weren't even on the back of the bus uh, at Wells Fargo. So it really spoke to me about an entire failure of uh, not an existing compliance function, but one that was there on paper but really had nothing to do with uh, anything that went on at the bank. You know,
1: it's true, and this has weighed on my mind for a fair bit now, even before we saw this full report, which, in full disclosure, I have not read all 110 pages, but I did skim the executive summary. I've seen what other people have uh, written about it. I was thinking more about what does this highly fractured system at Wells Fargo – okay, very decentralized and a lot of different silos – not necessarily talking to each other or talking past each other or not talking at all, clearly that's not working. So how should people think about what does work? Um, And it does get back to what I think a lot about these days, especially in this highly transparent, social media-soaked world, and we can talk about some other misconduct and dumb things we've seen later on. But it really gets to the need to focus on culture and good conduct at that very granular in the branch level Um, and let those people do their jobs well, including giving them the opportunity to feed back up to the chain of command what you, chain of command people at the top, what you want is not working. Um, These are really failures about communication and culture. And Frankly, I'm not surprised. One thing I find very frustrating at very large banks is who actually is the chief of ethics and compliance or who's the head of it? Let's get away from the word chief because there are too many chief compliance officers. You can look up a big bank on LinkedIn, chief compliance officer. You'll get nine people with that title. You'll get nine people in charge of different types of risks or different audit uh, exercises. I appreciate the need for that all, but Things get so complex there that why are we surprised a failure of culture did not reach back up to the chain of command, to the top, to tell people what you want isn't working? And that's really the root of what happened here.
0: So I took – I was really intrigued by the lack of the chief compliance officer being mentioned in the report, so I looked uh, that person up. It's a woman named Yavelle Hollingsworth-Clark, and Mm -hmm. for a uh, $240 billion corporation with hundreds of thousands of employees – she had a compliance function of eight people. So it was um, pretty clear where compliance and ethics uh, sat at the bank. But even uh, the chief risk officer who was uh, the uh, in charge of what you and I might term compliance, as close as it yep. got to in Wells Fargo, compliance and ethics at least, as opposed to regulatory compliance, um, just uh, no accountability to escalate issues up uh, in all of the control functions that I mentioned, HR, legal, risk, audit, they were all aware that something was wrong and they were aware from disparate sources of information. So for instance, um, legal was aware because they were fighting unemployment compensation claims where the California state judges were noting that people were being fired for not meeting unreasonable sales goals. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if you've ever had to deal with an unemployment compensation state judge in Massachusetts, but I have in the state, of, great state of Texas, and I would share with you that their level of sophistication is not really high, um, <laughs> certainly not to the level of a U.S. federal judge. Uh, and so when you have people like that starting to make questions, the other thing that uh, really intrigued me uh, that the legal department stumbled on was that the bond rating uh, that the Bonds issued, uh, warranty bonds for the bank were called into question uh, because of these uh, sales figures. And so you had insurance bonding companies questioning the legal department about the risks the bank was taking. So uh, obviously in the HR department there were innumerable terminations uh, and questions and complaints about the sales practices. Uh, so just disparate information points that were never able to uh, to percolate up, and even when the board finally, after the L.A. Times story, after the City of Los Angeles lawsuit, uh, demanded a report from uh, head of Community Bank Tolstat, uh, she basically went in front of the board and, and misrepresented directly to the board, and that that's simply not tolerable in a publicly traded corporation. So. Uh, you know there's always going to be people that that say the report was a whitewash because they didn't name enough names or point enough fingers or pointed fingers at people that are fired now but there's really a lot of meat for not only people like you and I to to comment on but I think for the uh, compliance professional and compliance practitioner and, and the cultural ethicist such as yourself to really point to and say these are some of the problems you have if you don't have a much more holistic approach.
1: Yeah and you know I Two thoughts come to my mind is that certainly within this report, you're right. Some people are going to say this wasn't hard-hitting enough. Other people who are hit in this report are not going to like it. And, I mean, clearly there was actual misconduct that happened at Wells Fargo. But I thought one sharp point was raised by you, Tom, in one of the the posts that you had about this where you said uh, the CRO – did not have any line authority or directive power to enforce changes on the lines of business. I think that was in the report, and you flagged it up in one of your posts. Right. And that's absolutely the key here. And I mean that's even – that's the key point for people listening who say, okay, there but for the grace of God go I and my company, but I don't want to be Wells. What do I have to worry about? You have to worry about the head of ethics, compliance, risk culture, whoever you are – But do you have any line authority or direct power to bring changes about at the lines of business? Because these people who were aware of misconduct in the lines of business, they didn't have any authority to make any action. Um, If you are just there sitting around preaching the gospel of good compliance and ethics, but nobody's really listening to you, then you've got a big problem. And uh, the other point that you described uh, this as a denuded compliance function. And I think that's a wonderful adjective for what really happened here. Because clearly they had some structure, but it didn't matter. It didn't do anything. It couldn't move the ball down the field if we want to keep mixing metaphors around. And that's um, that's what you need to think about. And that's not what happened at Wells Fargo, but it is what other compliance officers sh- should be thinking in their own organizations. Can you actually get lines of business to change you yourself can only do that with uh, support from the bosses, the CEO and the board, because that's who the lines of business will listen to. And you have to focus in on the bottom layers of your organization to make sure that they get that message and that they have clear lines of communications back up when something's not working. Um, it's just it's really an object lesson in the importance of these kind of things.
0: So here's uh, the question I want to pose to you, and I've been waiting for this. It's not a gotcha question, but yep. uh, you've been writing and thinking about compliance for a long time, and so have I. And I wanted to ask you, when was the last time you wrote about the structure of a compliance function? And I, because I thought about that, and and for me, it's like 2010, 2011. I thought those days were were long past, and here we have. Uh, America's uh, if not largest one of the top three largest banks uh, and we're talking about structure of both compliance and the business organization it, do you find that unusual or not uh,
1: can I say no not terribly but I'm disappointed about that because you're right I did think that you know we have moved beyond a bit what the best practice should or should not be are we debating this no we're not you know everybody is clear, including in the u s. sentencing guidelines, that a strong compliance function has a chief compliance officer who is not the general counsel and does not report to the general counsel. And I've seen plenty of surveys that show the reporting structure from the CCO up is improving in that direction. Um, but there are still plenty where the general counsel is responsible for the compliance end of things. and That interprets it to be a very legally driven function rather than more of a culture and ethics driven function, which is what it needs to be if you want your company to look good and to work and avoid these terrible sort of headaches. Um, One other point that I would want to raise is we do spend an awful lot of time talking about silos. Silos are bad. Silos mean that people aren't talking to each other. I almost think we should... try and get away from that word and pay more attention to layers. I don't necessarily care who within the company is reaching down to the bottom layer and telling them what the cultural mission should be, what the core value should be, here's how you should be trying them, here's how who to express your dismay to when our plans don't work. You know, I don't care if it's the audit executive or the risk executive, the compliance officer, it should also be the CEO supporting him but you know, it really is about these frontline people who are going to respond to company pressures in some manner. Clearly, at Wells, a lot of them responded in an unwise and incorrect and illegal way. But when they tried to blow the whistle on this, the company failed them. And not enough people really did do this because thousands and thousands of people were committing this sort of misconduct. So, uh, you know, I, I do wonder if really, if we're going to move to an era where values matter. Demonstrating your attentiveness to values matters, because if you don't, it's going to get shotgunned all over social media by that afternoon, then it isn't about the silo. It's about the layer and which layer is going to be the one that could get your company in the worst possible light. Um, and that's, that's another area of failure here that happened with Wells.
0: So it's pretty clear you and I could talk about this for uh, quite some time, but uh, I really wanted to move on because... Our old friend is back again, and you wrote about it, United Airlines. Actually, we both wrote about it. But uh, why don't maybe you kind of set the stage if there was uh, anyone who's been visiting Mars uh, earlier this week and just returned to planet Earth. What brought United back into the news, and what are the lessons uh, that we can garner from it?
1: Oh boy, you know, even just bringing up to speed what has United done could take a good hour. Um, <laughs> because this is the first company I have written about in two consecutive weeks uh, for the same sort of basic problem. Uh, this particular instance that's on everybody's mind this week is when United forcibly removed a passenger from a flight from Chicago to, I think, Kentucky who had boarded, had paid his ticket had been confirmed and everything, but then a crew of four that United had to get on that plane somehow, they show up at the last minute, so United had to remove four people. Um, Now, three of those people did go willingly on some sort of overbooking compensation, but the fourth, his name is David Dow, who is a doctor, he said, no, I'm not going to do this. I have to be somewhere Monday morning, you know, I've got patients to see. So they called the airport security who roughed him up and dragged him off. And that was in social media. And that goes all over the Internet. Um, United did itself no favors with its first quasi apology. A sorry, not sorry sort of thing from the CEO who called the patient, the passenger belligerent. And um, then that failed. And suddenly the CEO had to make a second apology, I think, on Tuesday where he said, you know, we were absolutely wrong, and he fell on his sword. But this doctor, David Dow, he definitely suffered physical injury, and, you know, he's going to sue. I'm sure that uh, Congress is already calling for investigations and questions and hearings and, like, such an a mess because United's employees – I'm not even sure if they were employees. They may have been third-party contractors working for United – because they handled this situation so poorly, and then the CEO followed up with his own not handling it well. Like, this is a and this this is not to be confused with United's previous scandal <laughs> last week, where they removed two teenage girls from a flight because they were wearing leggings, and that also got shotgunned all over social media as a sexist and unnecessary um, imposition on these two girls uh, who d- couldn't get on their flight from Denver to Minneapolis. So that's, that's just what happened. We, we can now talk about what went wrong and how companies could avoid it. But just the facts of bringing up United's missteps can take a good five minutes these days.
0: <laughs> so the um, – actually, I decided to look into the uh, terms of carriage, uh, mm-hmm. uh, being a lawyer, and wanted to see really what were my rights. And, of course, uh, I correctly understood that uh, I can be removed uh, – from a flight for overbooking. And uh, although I certainly wouldn't like that, the the airline has the absolute right to do that. However, it turns out uh, they do not have the legal right to remove you uh, on non-overbooking situations, such as needing to get other United or United-affiliated airline employees to another location. Um, they can offer tickets, but they cannot physically remove you and you're not subject to removal. I believe that's the phrase when it's an overbooking situation. So, um, of course the lawyer in me, uh, uh wants to say, well, they don't have the contractual right to do that. But the other thing, Matt, that, uh, I really wanted to, to maybe, uh, emphasize was something I write a lot about is the fair process doctrine. And, mm-hmm. uh, I write about it in the, uh, in, the, um, the business context, But it's really a part of the social contract, and certainly one of the reasons that people will more willingly submit to absolute authority, such as a police officer or um, other credentialed uh, peace officer, is the uh, belief that, uh, rightly or wrongly, we'll be treated fairly. So that if a police officer tells us to move and has the right to do that, whether we may or may not want to move, we do move. And uh, if if we move, we will not be sanctioned to being beaten up or other uh, physical uh, violence. And here, um, that really fair process doctrine was broken uh, because passengers did not think that they would be physically removed from an airline uh, by asserting their right to, to stay on it in this situation. And so uh that to me was was one of the real lessons here that uh airline captains have to have absolute discretion and absolute authority over the airline but we as their crew their consumers their customers have to believe that we'll be treated fairly and uh United has not articulated a reason of why this passenger was selected. Uh, I certainly hope it wasn't profiling for a 69-year-old Asian who turns out had immigrated from Vietnam after the Vietnamese War. Um, uh, The optics of that obviously are just horrible for United. But uh, Mm -hmm. whatever the algorithm they use or the criteria, I I think that they need to have some transparency around that. So if it is the pricing of your ticket, for instance— or the lack of number of miles you have, uh, that that's something that you would be aware of. And if that call is made to you, you have to leave. Uh, you will at least uh, um, be perceived that there was fairness in the decision uh, to make you leave. So uh, you and I are probably going to be talking and writing about this case for a long, long time. Um, uh, certainly United is giving us lots to talk and, and uh, think about. But, uh, you know, this one is was about as bad as it can get. A 69-year-old man uh, physically injured. Um, the uh, police or the uh, civil authorities that were called, um, they were basically enforcing a business decision of United. But once you involve the police, I mean, they are there to um, enforce and uh, take whatever steps necessary to enforce. And that's, you know, one of the criticisms of putting police in schools is that they will enforce and they will use mm-hmm. uh, necessary force to enforce uh, what they believe or, or they understood they've been told to do. And so uh, when the police are called at the airport, it's generally we have a belligerent passenger. Get him out of here. Uh, it's not that we're having a dispute over whether or not someone uh, has the right to stay on a plane when uh, four uh, employees want to bump off paying customers. So lots to talk about. Any other kind of uh, initial things that, that struck you that the compliance practitioner might take away? You know, I,
1: I, I've thought about the United cases a lot, both incidents, the leggings incident and this one, and I will even do... Uh, I will go a long way for United, and I'll put aside all the very valid points you raised about if this guy should have been removed or not. Like, do United have – did they have the legal authority? I'll give it to them. You know what? Let's say that you did have the authority to remove David Dow by force. And on the leggings incident uh, the prior week, they did have the right to remove those girls for wearing leggings, which was against United policy – for people flying on employee pass tickets, which those two girls were. Even if, in both instances, United employees acted according to policy, who cares? That is the question compliance officers really need to think about, because more and more companies are going to find that following policy can sometimes conflict with other broader objectives, such as flight safety is always going to be one for United, or preserving brand value and reputation, which went out the window with both of these incidents, which could arguably have still been in sync with United employee policy and procedure. You're going to need to inculcate into your employees what are our absolute core priorities and objectives. So for United, it's number one, safety. Okay, that was never going to be an issue here. Number two, what is best for the airline, and it is not always going to be a slavish devotion to policy. It is going to be what is the best way to handle something that may involve reputational harm to the airline. All they had to do was offer another thousand dollars to somebody else to get bumped instead. That would have gone against normal parameters in United, but I'm sure the CEO now is wishing they'd offered ten thousand or twenty thousand dollars to get somebody else to give it up. This is going to cost them millions of bucks, and. You're going to need to think through, you know, at what point does a slavish devotion to policy get put aside in favor of other broader objectives? And, you know, this this new era of enhanced reputational risk, enhanced transparency, that's never going to go away. And that, you know, you're going to have to be thinking, how do we navigate all of this?
0: You know, that's a great point, and it really speaks to uh, your your thoughts on. Uh, values, uh, excuse me, culture, values, and compliance. And that really hits on number two, the values, because the values of United yeah. should be, number one, safety, and number two, uh, brand brand reputation. So uh, absolutely. I, I would say, yeah, this is not going to be a PR problem that compliance officers don't have to think about. This
1: is a corporate conduct and culture and behavior issue, and that is something CCOs have to think about. So they they should look at this closely about what happened here.
0: So Matt, I'm going to run through a couple pretty quickly because uh, I want to get to the last one, which is uh, you getting to see the Goo Goo Dolls. So, uh, oh, sure. Sarah Croft over on uh, Grand Jury Target blog wrote a great piece on um, a very interesting uh, judicial decision around restitution. It was in a bank uh, finance uh, bank case around the uh, financial collapse in 2008, but it had a really lot of interesting information for. Uh, companies and countries that will try to seek restitution uh, in FCPA cases. We didn't even get to the CEO of Barclay, who was penalized for trying to unmask an internal and anonymous whistleblower by using not only corporate security, but U.S. law enforcement personnel. Uh, But I did want to get to your blog post this week uh, calling Getting Started with Cloud Data and Risk, which is a report of your attendance at the uh, Oracle modern finance experience in Boston, Uh, getting to see the Goo Goo Dolls for me as the uh, rock and roll blogger would have been the highlight. But uh, perhaps there were some other highlights you could share with us. All right. Well,
1: so don't kick me off the call for saying this, Don. but I did not go see the Goo Goo Dolls. Um, (laughs)
0: Okay. I don't lose my (laughs) time. They
1: they did uh, give every attendee the chance to go. I did not take them up on that. But I thought that the conference was really good at raising a couple of different points about how the cloud is going to transform the abilities that companies will have with their IT. And I'm a big fan of the cloud. It's going to allow you to do an awful lot. But the implications of being able to do an awful lot around business processes and around compliance, internal controls, testing internal controls, a lot of those issues have to be thought through. Um, I thought a, there was one person, she gave a great explanation of how she was using the cloud to do more data visualization, which was great for her board, so that they could see risks and key risk indicators, key performance indicators in a much more complex way. But, you know, while we don't often talk about this, the fact is the human brain is wired to process information in visual, in pictures, in images, in things that we looked around and we saw where were the predators millions of years ago. And, you know, you will be able to do that sort of thing with any number of cloud vendors. Oracle is one, but there are plenty of others who could do this if you understand what your ideal visualizations are going to be. You know, what are the key risk indicators that you're looking for? If you typically had a KRI that was this sort of thing, how often it happens per month or per employee. Well, now you could look, you know, per employee over time in this particular country or what happens when the employee shifts to a new job or any number of, you know, looking at level, levels of employees, senior versus junior. Uh, you're going to be able to do great things. You'll need to think through what are the great things that we want to do to manage and monitor our risks. So that was one. I do think that um, – Companies will find that they are pressured subtly, but nonetheless pressured, to change some of their financial reporting processes to make them a bit more standardized. And, uh, Tom, on our regular podcast, you and I do, the End of the Weeds one, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago where Microsoft has already started weighing and assessing people's cybersecurity postures for their use of the Office 365 cloud program. Right, Microsoft has a preferred ideal configuration of security. Well, we're going to see that concept more and more in other types of business processes, like financial processes. You might find that your cloud provider can give you great things, but We give great things to 16,000 customers, and this is the preferred way to do financial transactions like procure-to-payment process. Um, Maybe you've customized it. Well, maybe you might want to think about uncustomizing it and streamlining it to what your cloud provider says is the best practice. Maybe you want to look back, what would the Justice Department think about us doing this? Is it a good idea? Is it not? I'm not saying that there's any easy answer to these questions, but these are questions that you're going to be able to ask more easily in the future, and you're going to have to think through some answers. So it was a very interesting um, sort of vision into what could be with financial technology and the implications for risk management. That's what went on at Oracle, plus the Google Dolls last night who I skipped. <laughs>
0: Well, Matt, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but uh, you've done a great job on the pinch hitting role, and I think you will uh, definitely be invited back when Jay or I are off. So um, for uh, this week in FCPA, uh, this has been Tom Fox with Matt Kelly sitting in. Matt, thanks a lot. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox. Again, I'd like to thank you again for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you've listened to this episode on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help our rankings and also help get the word out about the only weekly FCPA Compliance and Ethics podcast. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you will join us again.